This morning's scripture reading is comprised of selections from the book of Psalms. How long, Lord, will you forget, forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? My feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. You have rejected and humbled us. You gave us up to be devoured like sheep. You sold your people for a pittance, gaining nothing from their sale. You have made us reproach to our neighbors, the scorn and derision of those around us. The people shake their heads at us. I live in disgrace all day long, and my face is covered with shame. All this came upon us, though we had not forgotten you. We had not been false to your covenant, our hearts had not turned back, our feet had not strayed from your path, but you crushed us. You covered us over with deep darkness. For your sake we face death all day long. Are we considered as sheep to be slaughtered? Awake, O Lord. Why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? This morning is week two now of this uh, summer series we're doing called Summer Psalms, looking at the book of Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible. Uh, we're doing this 60 days of prayer, you know, throughout the, the summer uh, as a church trying to pray every day for 60 days. And so we're doing this series on the book of Psalms while we go through that, that initiative uh, so that every week when you come on Sunday... We may not be talking about prayer specifically, that might, might not be the topic, uh, but you're going to be by osmosis, by exposure, getting to see these great prayers of the Bible, and so you kind of learn how to do it from example. So like I said, this is week two. Last week, Chip kicked us off talking about Psalm 90, and uh, this morning we're going to talk about three different psalms, these psalms that you just heard read, 13 and 73 and 41, I think. Uh, where the thing they have in common is that these people, these prayers, these people talking to God, they are angry with him. They're angry with God, and they're letting him know it. They're, they're telling him how angry they are. So that's what I want us to talk about this week. And it's going to be a two-part sermon. Uh, so normally, uh, a sermon's supposed to be kind of like a, a sitcom, you know, where it's got a, a beginning and a middle and an end. And you raise a little tension in the middle, and then you resolve it by the end. And everybody goes home feeling nice. Uh, this week, given the topic, I just didn't feel right about doing that. I didn't feel right about wrapping it all up and putting a nice bow on it. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to just have a beginning and a middle and no end. We're just going to raise the tension and then leave it completely unresolved and some of you are going to walk out of here confused, like, was this church or the, the atheist society? You know, like, which, which team was he on here? Which side was he arguing for? It's good. It's only the first half. It's the first half of the sermon. Uh, so you got to come back for part two. <laughs> Cliffhanger. This is, you know, season finales. They do this. Uh, you got to come back for part two. I'm only preaching every three weeks in the summer. So that gives you actually uh, three weeks in between to kind of sit with this, which I think is appropriate. I don't think we want to wrap this up too quickly. So in part two, what we're going to talk about is what you do with your anger with God, how you deal with it. But today, all I want to do is just make the argument that you should 
be angry with God. You should be angry with God. And, and I mean should. If you're not, you should be. You know, so those of you who walked in here and you're already angry with God, you're ahead of the curve. You know, you're, you're already checked off the first box. You're doing great. But for those of you that uh, aren't angry with God, or it's not that you have to be angry with God all the time, of course, but have never been angry with God. If you've never been angry with God, that's a problem. And this morning I want to make the case for, for why that is, why it's wrong to have never been angry with God. And no sections this morning, just kind of going to meander. Well, what it comes down to, the thesis basically of why you should be angry with God is, uh, A, the world is a really unfair place, and B, God runs the world. So that's kind of it. Now, the way that theologians have tried to defend against this charge, that we should be angry with God for all these terrible things that happen in the world, there's a couple of different defenses, but the main one has to do with free will. It has to do with some version of the argument of, well, we, we screwed things up, so it's our fault, not God's fault. And what I want to say this morning, the, the point this morning is to, to argue, that's not good enough. It's a, not a good enough excuse. It's not a good enough defense. That defense of free will doesn't get God off the hook. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at that defense free will, in three categories, three bad things, or types of bad things that can happen um, in order of how much culpability there is of human beings. So the first category is when somebody willfully does something wrong to another person with malicious intent, you know, they're trying to hurt. And the second category in between is where it's an accident, where somebody was careless or negligent, so there's still a human cause, but it, it wasn't something they were doing on purpose. And then the third category on the other end of the spectrum is where there's just no human cause at all, where it's completely a natural cause and, and human beings have nothing to do with it. So I want to go through all three of those and look at this defense of free will with all three. I know this sounds very philosophical, but I think it's, as we go, you're going to see it's pretty, pretty related to, to real life. So first, and we're going to do this one the most quickly. This is the one I'm, I'm least interested in this morning because I want to save time for the other two. The first category is when human beings intentionally wrong other human beings, when, when they try to hurt other people. And what the theologians say is, and it makes the most sense in this category, it's going to make less and less sense as we go. So this is the, the uh, category where they have the, the best argument. What they say is, well, if a person chooses to hurt somebody else, that's their choice. And you have to blame that person not God, because God has to honor our free choices. He has to honor our autonomy. He can't be coming in and stopping it every time we try to do something wrong. That wouldn't be respecting us as persons. And like I said, it, it does make sense on a certain level to blame the person, the wrongdoer, the perpetrator, instead of God. But on another level, once you start to dig into it, it also feels like it's not quite enough to just blame the other person. So to talk about this, and you know, I apologize for, for uh, going here on a beautiful July Sunday, but I think it's the easiest place to, to talk about this just for the sake of time to make the point is to talk about the worst things we do to each other as human beings. So we could talk about you know, more petty stuff, the lying and the cheating and the stealing. Uh, but if you go to like the really extreme cases that nobody wants to think about, but the stuff that does still happen, the, the murders and the rapes 
and the, the sexual abuse of children, this really awful stuff. One of the things we've been talking about lately is that any of us are capable of doing any of these things. And that what it has to do with is this accident of birth, of where you were born, of how you were raised, and of your genetics, of your brain to some extent. Now that's not to absolve these people of responsibility. So nothing I'm about to say, in nothing I'm about to say, am I saying the people who do these terrible things aren't to blame. They are to blame. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be punished. On, on the societal level, on the level of justice and running a society, of course they have to be punished. Of course they deserve the most severe punishment. So of course they're to blame, of course they're responsible, of course they deserve to be punished, but are they the only ones to blame? Because it's not just the perpetrator. If, it's, if it has to do with how they were raised, and it always does, then it's also the perpetrator's parents that you have to blame. But then, if you're blaming the perpetrator's parents, well, that has to do with how they were raised. And so then you have to blame the perpetrator's grandparents. And you see where that goes. You know, that's just going to keep going ad infinitum. And it's not just about how you were raised. What if, what if there's also, as we now know, these neurological components to it, these biological components to it, this sickness? What if the people who do these things on some level don't want to do them but, but can't stop. Again, I'm not saying they're not to blame. I'm, at the end of the day, they do have a choice. But they did them and you didn't. What's the difference between you and them? Is it just because you're that much a better person? Or are there all these causes? And if it is in part because of sickness, well, is it their fault that they were born sick? Or is that more God's fault? If, if you say it's their parents' fault and they're their grandparents' fault and then their great-grandparents' great grandparents' fault, that all those generations share in the blame. Well, as you keep going back, as there's this regression of causation, ultimately you got to get to the top. It has to, you know, the buck stops here. It has to stop somewhere. Ultimately, even in these cases of willful wrong, doesn't it raise questions about God's culpability, about God's responsibility? That's just the first category. And it gets easier to, to prove the case against God from here, as you go. So, as I said, just a minute on that one. Second, let's talk about accidents. When a human being makes a choice that results in harm to another human being, and they didn't mean to do anything wrong, they didn't mean to hurt anybody, but they did. They, they made a bad choice and they did. So a classic example would be like drunk driving, uh, where you, know, you didn't want to hurt anybody, but all of a sudden you killed a whole family. Who's to blame there? Who should we be angry at when that happens? Well, yes, you can be angry at the drunk driver, and that's what the theologian says. It's the, it's the drunk driver's fault. Whoever made the mistake, whoever was careless, whoever was negligent, that's the person you should be angry at, and that's the person you should blame for this pain and this suffering. But let me give you two other examples to, to challenge that, two specific examples. So we've talked about these before. These two have, have lodged in my mind uh, for a certain reason, and I'll explain why in a second. So the first one was uh, a long time ago. Uh, you may have read about this. This was uh, 30 years ago in the Bronx, on, in the Bronx on Christmas Day. And uh, this guy fired a gun randomly, stray bullet, and went through a window and, and hit and killed this five-year-old kid opening presents on Christmas morning. That's the first one. The second one, which everybody in here remembers, is a few years ago when also on Christmas morning, 
the you know the home of that family that lived here in Tribeca, their home in Stamford, Connecticut, caught fire and and burned to the ground, and all three kids and the and the grandparents all died. And when you hear those stories, you know, so what's what's the proper emotional response? It's not like, oh, I. That's too bad, you know. That's not. That doesn't. That's not the right way to feel about it. The right way to feel about it is not just to feel sad, but to feel angry. And then the question is, who are you angry at about those things happening? Who are you angry at that those things could happen in this world? So, in the first case, are you angry at the guy who fired the gun? Are you angry about guns? You know, a lot of people are angry about guns. You're angry at lawmakers for not passing stricter gun laws. Is that who you blame? But then in the second case, who do you blame there? You, you know, human carelessness, you blame fires, you blame some building code inspector that didn't do their job. And it starts to feel like the, the depth of our fury isn't matched by the people we're angry at. Like, we have this amount of anger, but then the, the people we're angry at seem small compared to the amount of anger we have. And it raises this question of maybe we're, we're turning our anger toward the wrong person. The reason these particular examples have lodged in my mind so much is because of the, the Christmas Day point. And from a secular logical connection, who cares? Who cares that it's Christmas Day? It's just one day like any other. Of course, things are going to happen by random chance on that day, just like every day. But from a faith perspective, it's like, well, couldn't, couldn't there be a holiday from, from pain and suffering for one day? I mean, if God is going to just protect the human race for one day, why not make it Christmas? Like, it's your day, God, and you're going to let this stuff happen even on your day? And let is the key word. You're going to let this stuff happen. You're going to allow this stuff to happen, because he does. That's what the Bible is very clear about, is that he actively chooses to allow these things to happen, which is where the theologian gets into trouble with this defense about free will. Because they're saying, well, God has to respect our autonomy. God has to let us do these things. If we want to hurt each other, if we want to make mistakes, he has to let us. Okay, except that sometimes he doesn't. In the 1700s, it was only popular for like 100 years, very short-lived. It was a very big deal at the time. People thought it was going to be like the new religion. It was this philosophy called deism. And a lot of the American founders actually were deists just by the happenstance of when they happened to live. So it died out very quickly. But the idea was that God created the world because obviously it had to get here somehow. So there's clearly a creator. God created the world, but then he stepped back and does not intervene in human affairs at all. Doesn't do anything. Never touches human events. Well, if that was true, then this defense about free will would hold up. Then you could say, well, look, he, he can't do anything. But the reason deism died out is because that's just not the picture of God that the Bible portrays. The Bible portrays a God who does answer prayer and who does intervene and who does protect and who does come between a person's bad choices and another person's suffering in some cases which is comforting on one level, but on another level, that's actually more unnerving. Because if he can choose to intervene, then that means that every time he doesn't intervene, he's choosing not to. He's choosing not to. And that's really hard to take. Let me read you 
what one guy said about this. This was on the blog, Humans of New York. This is a former pastor that was being interviewed. He said, I've been a deep believer my whole life. I'm an ordained pastor, but it's just stopped making sense to me. It doesn't make sense anymore. It doesn't make sense to believe in a God that dabbles in people's lives. If a plane crashes and one person survives, everyone thanks God. They say, God had a purpose for that person. God saved her for a reason. Do we not realize how cruel that is? Do we not realize how cruel it is to say that if God had a purpose for that person, he also had a purpose in killing everyone else on the plane? And a purpose in starving millions of children? A purpose in slavery and genocide? For every time you say that there's a purpose behind one person's success, you invalidate billions of people. You say there's a purpose to their suffering, and that's just cruel. That takes us to the third category. First two are where there's a human cause of some sort, either willful or accidental. But then the third category of human suffering, and this is the one where it's hardest of all to make a free will defense or argument, is all that suffering where there is just no human cause at all, where it's just purely natural. Human beings didn't do anything. This wild inequity in the world, both on a, a macro level and on an individual level. And it's inequity on both sides. It's inequity with respect to opportunities, but it's also inequity with respect to, to pain and suffering. So with respect to opportunity, why, why do some countries, some continents, have healthcare and all the food and clean water that they need and access to education and everything else, and then others don't have any of those things? No healthcare, no clean water. Not enough food. How is that fair? You can try to explain it historically and say, oh, humans did this and that and oppression and all these other things. But how did it even get that way to begin with? The uh, best-selling book on this, this was 20 years ago now, was that uh, UCLA professor had that, that book, uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And the argument he makes is that it's basically geographic luck. It's just the luck of the globe and the natural resources and the winds and the currents and the geology, the minerals. It's all just luck. How is that fair on an individual level? How is it fair that, you know, the, the difference between you and the panhandler you pass every day on the street is not that you're a harder worker than he is. That's not the main difference. Maybe you are a harder worker, but even that is an inherited trait. Even that is a learned trait. So it's not primarily to your moral credit you, that you have all these opportunities and he's sitting where he is. Yes, you made choices. Yes, he made choices. But the choices in themselves can't explain it. So there's the, the inequality of opportunity, but then there's the inequality of suffering, the pain and suffering that, that has no human cause, but that hits everybody differently. And just randomly. You know, so think about sticking with the theme of Christmas. Think about the, the tsunami 15 years ago. It kills quarter of a million people. Qu quarter of a million people, that's a calculator. It's 83 9-11s. So that's if 9-11 happened every month, September 11th, October 11th, November 11th, December 11th, every month for seven years. That's the tsunami. In other words, God can kill a lot more people a lot faster than any terrorist group ever could. And who else are you going to blame for that? You know, you know the weatherman? Like who, there's no one else to blame. 
except God. He's the only possible person you can blame. Now, even here, theologians try to use free will as a defense. And they'll say, well, what it is is God made the world perfect. God made the world perfect, but we screwed it up. When we sinned, it it brought a curse on the world. It broke the world. Creation is broken. And so even the tsunamis are our fault. Well, even if that's true, and I actually happen to think it is. It sounds weird, but I, I, as a Christian, believe that's true, that we broke the world, that it is our fault. But still, A, God let us do it. You know, he, he was there in the garden. He knew we were going to eat from the fruit. He let it happen. If a kid is tearing up a restaurant, you don't just blame the kid. You blame the kid's parents, too. They were standing there watching it happen. But then B, okay, so we're all guilty. We're all guilty for breaking creation and, you know, making this curse happen on the world. Fine, but then if we're all guilty, why does the harm of that hit people so disproportionately? You know, the tsunami you're talking about, the bottom 10%, mostly, uh, uh, economically, of the world. You're talking about the poorest of the poor getting hit. Why, why them? Why do they get hit? Or again, on the individual level. We feel it more on the individual level. The, the big stuff is mind-numbing. You know, it just becomes numbers after a while. Even as soon as you get to two people, it's kind of an abstraction. But if you think about one person... You all have stories like this. You all have stories like this either from your own life or from friends uh, of stuff, not just that happened a long time ago. Every person in this room has a story like this right now, something that's happening right now. For us, what it is is a family uh, from our preschool that we're friends with who uh, they've spent the last year in hospitals. The dad had to quit his job to make time to make all these trips all over the country to all these different hospitals for their second child, who was uh, diagnosed with leukemia at less than a year old, and will, will almost certainly not survive. And the question is, how is that fair? It's just, it's just not fair. You know, in that same class, there have been all of these other families that have had healthy babies during that same time period, or even just us. We've had four healthy kids. Why, why should God give us four healthy kids and then their second kid take the life of their second child. That's not fair. And there's no human cause. And it has to be God's fault. It has to be God's fault. Even if we're to blame in part because of our sin, he's still letting it happen. He's still in charge of this world. He's still allowing this to go on in such unfair ways without any rhyme or reason. You know, back to this idea of deism and the curse of sin it's almost like if, if there was a pattern to it, if everybody lost their second child, if you just knew for sure you know, your, your second child was going to die, well, that'd be terrible. That's, that's awful. But it's almost better than the randomness, the complete chaos of this where there's absolutely no rhyme or reason to it. Now, the worst thing of all that people have tried to say to get God off the hook for all this is they've tried to say... You know, all that free will stuff aside. Then the people go. Well, the place people go after, after you are running out of other options is your last-ditch attempt to, to save God's reputation. You, you say, well, maybe. Here's a, here's a theory. Maybe there is a rhyme and reason to it. Maybe, maybe there's kind of a pattern and a meaning between who's getting hit and who's not getting hit. And what this goes to is just our insatiable need to make sense of things and to blame anyone but God 
including blaming ourselves. So, you know, this, there's this very perverse tendency when something happens to think, well, maybe, maybe I did do something, you know, to blame yourself. Well, maybe this is punishment for this, that, or the other. Maybe that's what this is about. You're trying to make sense of it. Even worse, for those who have never been on the short end of the stick, for those who have never had anything like this happen to them, there is a shockingly widespread belief, and nobody would say this out loud, but there is a shockingly widespread belief that it's happened because God's been looking out for them, because they've been doing what they're supposed to do. And this belief that somehow for the, for the truly chosen, there's always a, a halo of protection around the car, and the tumor always goes away, and the child always recovers. And that's a lie from hell. It's a lie from hell, because there's nothing Satan would rather have you believe than that. Because if you believe that, then where's your faith when it does come? Because it's coming. It will come. Where's your faith when it does come? And that's what the psalmists are so mad about, by the way, is that they were righteous. You heard them saying, look, if we had forsaken all your commandments and you'd done this to us, that'd be one thing. But we didn't. And so how is this fair? How is this fair? Especially when the people who are saying, oh, we don't care about what God says, are having these great lives and are living in prosperity. How is this fair? The classic text on people trying to blame themselves or blame others for the bad things that happen instead of taking the complaint to the proper department is the book of Job. So for those of you who are uh, new to church, just review the facts Real quickly, Job is this really good guy, really righteous guy. And uh, Satan comes to God. So stop right there. There's another source of pain and suffering in the world is the devil. And you say, well, does that get God off the hook? No, because still God allows him to do it. So Satan comes to God. And speaking of allowing him to do it, Satan says to, to God, hey, can I mess with Job? And God says, okay. So Satan takes his, his wife and his kids and afflicts them with all these diseases, takes all his wealth, he's covered in, in boils. And, you know, we, we glorify this story when we talk about it. Like, oh, it's so great that he, he praises God in the midst of his suffering. It's so beautiful. Well, you wouldn't have thought it was beautiful if you were living through it. It's not, it's not very beautiful. It's kind of messed up. These psalms that we just read. There's a whole category of them in the Bible, these people complaining to God. And they're, they're known by biblical scholars as the, the Psalms of Lament, which is just a terrible name for them because it, it sounds so holy and, and dignified. Psalms of Lament. The really, the better name for this category of Psalms would be to call them the, the WTF Psalms because <laughs> that's what they are. It's saying, God, this is really effed up, you know, what the hell, why, why is this happening, this makes no sense, that's what Job says, that's what Job says in the book of Job, Job is the hero in the book of Job, you know who the villains are, the theologians, the theologians are the villains in the book of Job, the Bible is so profound, the Bible is so deep, so much deeper than our religious cliches. In fact, so much of the Bible is doing battle with our religious cliches. So the villains in the book of Job are these friends, these friends of Job. And they come to Job, and this is the whole book. The whole book is just this dialogue between the friends and Job. And the friends come to Job and they say, Job, you know, uh, somebody is to blame here. And it can't be God. 
It clearly can't be God. So process of elimination, it has to be you. You must have done something wrong. So just repent, get over your pride, say you're sorry, and God will restore you. That's what they say. So one of the lessons of the book of Job is that the last people you want around you when you're going through a crisis is religious people. The, 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 the very last people you want to be around. Why? Because they are more concerned with doing spin and PR for God than they are about what's going on with you. And like all spin and like all PR, it's just completely illogical. You know, so God gets credit for all the good stuff, but then it's our fault when all the bad stuff happens? That must be nice. That's a pretty good arrangement. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And you think you're doing God a favor when you talk like this, but you're not. Because what happens at the end of the book of Job is that God himself shows up. And so all the friends, all the theologians are like, hey, God, we've been sticking up for you. And God says to them, fool, 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 fool. He rebukes all of them. He said, why, why are you talking? What's funny is a lot of the things they were saying were true. They just didn't need to be said. They didn't need to be said. What needed to be said was the things that Job was saying. And here's the really crazy part, is that a lot of the things that Job was saying weren't true. They were making defenses of God that were true, and God called them fools. Job was making accusations of God that were not true, but God honored that. Why? Because it was real. Because it was what he was really feeling. You know, when I think about my job here, what is my job? It's partly to serve you, but like I've talked about all the time, I have another boss. There's somebody else I'm serving. I'm supposed to give him what he wants. And what he wants is real worshipers. What he wants is a relationship with his kids that is honest and real, where you tell him what you're really thinking. And anger has to be a part of that. With my girls, if they never got mad at me, is that, is that what I want? You know, maybe some days. But, but not ultimately. Ultimately, I don't want a relationship with my girls where every time they get mad, they just stuff it inside and don't say anything and think, well, I, I can't be mad at dad. That's not right. No. Them screaming at me is part of the relationship. It's part of the relationship, and it shows that they care. Same thing in a marriage. If you never fight, it's because the love is completely gone. And it's the same with God. It's only casual worshipers that don't get mad at God, just like only casual lovers never quarrel. The fact that you're getting mad at him and taking the complaint to the proper department shows that you believe he's real, which is what Job does. But the key is you have to pray about it. You have to talk to him, not about him. So big difference. Just like in a marriage, you know, it's one thing to go off bad-mouthing your spouse to everybody else. It's another thing entirely to talk to your spouse about it, to fight it out with your spouse. So all the worst things you can think of to say about God, I think you should say them. I just don't think you should say them to other people. I think you should say them to God. Think of the worst thing you can say. The worst thing you can say to God and say it to him. Tell him. And you might be wrong. In fact, you probably are. In fact, just to really throw a wrench in things and mess with your head, most of what I've said in this sermon is wrong in terms of accusing God and there's no defense and he's to blame. 
But you know what? It sure looks that way from our perspective. It sure looks that way from my perspective. And you have to start there. You have to start with who you are, not with some pretend version of who you want to be, and tell him how you really feel. It's always been the greatest saints that have done this. It's the most mature believers that have had the confidence to do this. Teresa of Avila was one of the greatest saints of the last thousand years. She has this great line in her journal where she says, God, if this is how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. She says, what are you doing to me? And that's what you have to say to God. Uh, two kind of semi-resolutions, two notes of uh, semi-comfort as we close. Again, I don't want to resolve the tension fully, but just two quick things. The first is that even in the midst of this anger, you still can praise and worship God, which, which sounds really weird at first. You know, it sounds schizophrenic. Um, but the Psalms are like this. The Psalms are totally schizophrenic, where they, they lash out like this in the middle and at the end they say, yet I will praise you, yet you are good. And it's possible to believe that. It's possible to believe that God is good, even having said everything I just said in this sermon. It's not possible logically. It doesn't make sense. But it is possible as a human being, human beings have done it for thousands of years, to completely just contradict yourself and say, God, you are screwing everything up, but I will praise you. But I will worship you. Which is what you see with Job. He says, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because whatever he does, he's still God. You know, there's that verse where Jesus says some really hard to understand offensive things and almost everybody, almost all of his followers leave. And Peter and a few of the others are left standing there and he turns to him and says, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? which is how I feel about worshiping God. You know, it's not like out of all the choices, this one seems like the best and the most logical and the most fun and the easiest. The reason I worship God is because at the end of the day, where else am I going to go? Who else am I going to worship? He's the only God I've got. He's the only God there is. So even if I'm mad at him, having a relationship with him is still a lot better than being alone in the universe. So that's the first thing. You can still worship, even if you're mad at God. We're going to sing this song as we close today. God, I look to you. Give me your perspective. You can make that your prayer, even if you're angry with him. At the end, it's, we sing, hallelujah, our God reigns. You can believe that God is in charge, even though you think he's doing everything wrong. The second note, as we close, is just that what's so unique about Christianity is that it talks about a God who has gone through the process of being angry at God. You see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asking God, saying, God, can we maybe not do this? Can we, can we please, could you please? This is Jesus. So if, if your theory is that the bad stuff only happens to people who have screwed up, well, your theory's in trouble now. Because this is Jesus. He's done everything perfectly. And he has the worst punishment possible coming. And he says, God, I don't deserve this. And God says, well, it's coming anyway. And he cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Jesus saying that. 
Now, again, that doesn't answer anything. That doesn't answer the question of why God would be so cruel, why God would be so unfair. But it does at least say that strangely, bizarrely, mysteriously, the Bible talks about a God who has gone through that feeling of anger and alienation himself. Let's pray. God, we come to you because where else are we going to go? Who else can we look to but you? When things are going well, we're so grateful to you and so happy. We want to pray and we want to be close to you and we want to do the right thing. And then things stop going well and we don't understand I ask this week, next week, I ask for the next three weeks, I ask that you would give us the courage to live in this tension. I ask that you'd give us the ability to pray, to talk to you about this, not to talk to others, but to talk to you about this honestly and openly about how we feel. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll head now into a time of response, as we do every week at this point in the service, which means you can do a couple of things. In the first place, you can go and receive communion in the back.